Hello and welcome to Dialogos with me, William Mill, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. For this episode, we are honoured to be joined by one of the most prominent defenders of Christianity in the world today, the philosopher, theologian and Christian apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig has written or edited over 40 books and, and more than 200 articles on philosophy and theology. And he is also a prominent debater, having debated the likes of Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Sir Roger Penrose, among many others. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Craig. My pleasure, William. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so to start off, here in Britain, each time the census happens, we hear about the decline in the number of Christians uh, and the increase in the number of atheists, and we sort of get the impression that that's the case in America. Is that the case mm. Is in America? Is it in decline in America? And what do you think has caused such a decline? In the United States, what you have, I think, is a phenomenon that the old, what are called mainline denominations, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the United Methodists, the Congregationalists, these denominations are all in free fall. Uh, they are bleeding members, their seminaries are closing or coalescing, whereas conservative churches, those who are Bible-believing churches, are maintaining their numbers and are even growing. So there seems to be a great polarization going on uh, in our country where the, the middle is emptying out, so to speak. Uh, and those who were nominally Christian before, uh, I think have come to realize that there's no point in getting up in the dark and the cold on a Sunday morning and going and singing and praying to somebody who isn't really there. And, and so this nominal Christianity, I think, is being abandoned by large numbers of people in our country. Um, but I don't think it's a matter of um, Bible-believing Christians losing their faith and uh, abandoning Christianity. Surely there is still the ph phenomenon of liberal uh, of a liberalization of still conservative evangelical Christianity. So in that sense, maybe people are dropping. I, I suppose from does that constitute a decline in your opinion? the liberalization of attitudes to Christianity, or is that slightly different, do you think? Yeah, I, I do think it's different, William. There was a recent poll uh, released in the United States about the decline in religious belief, and it's it's been serious and severe. But what the numbers revealed is that this is happening largely, and I, I'm almost sorry to say this, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say it, it's it's largely happening among Democrats and left-leaning progressives. It is this group that is abandoning, giving up belief in God, but not the traditional uh, believers. Now, the reason that's embarrassing is that I don't want Christianity to be associated with political right-wing politics, but for hmm. better or worse, there is a clear and manifest connection or affiliation between one's politics and one's religious beliefs. Um, leftist 
beliefs politically tend to be associated with more um, secular beliefs religiously. So I, I do not believe that there is a great apostasy going on, so to speak, among mm -hmm. Bible-believing Christians. On the contrary, I, I think these denominations um, and the intellectuals who represent them are, are very robust and flourishing. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I want to move on to, well, the name of your organization, Reasonable Faith, mm -hmm. which is in itself quite a controversial name uh, outside perhaps conservative uh -huh. uh, Christian circles because I've heard from many theists and atheists that faith and reason are totally separate and sure. even opposed to each other. Um, but you're suggesting something completely different to that, uh, aren't you? Yes, the name comes from the title of uh, my book, Reasonable Faith. And that title was actually chosen by the publisher. I thought it was boring, reasonable faith. I thought that sounds about as exciting as cold oatmeal. Um, but as it turned out, this has been a very controversial um, name for the organization precisely because of the mentality that you mentioned. And I think this mentality is the lingering vestige in Western culture of the Enlightenment, which threw off the monarchy and the church in the name of human autonomy and free thought. And it was the conviction uh, of modern children of the Enlightenment that um, religious belief and reason are fundamentally incompatible. And this modernist view has, I think, just been exploded over the last half century or so by the renaissance of Christian philosophy that has been going on uh, in uh, Great Britain and, and the United States, uh, by the resurgence of um, historical studies of the person of Jesus of Nazareth and the credibility of the Gospels with respect to his life and teachings, and also with regard to the advance of modern science, particularly physics, which is more open to the existence of a transcendent creator and designer than at any time in recent memory. So I think that those who claim that reason and religion are somehow at odds with each other are really on the outside uh, today. They're, they're out of date or, or they're simply ignorant of current intellectual currents. Um, on, in terms of the whole interaction between faith and reason, the reason for which you believe, is that purely an intellectual one? Or is it one where some people say, well, lots of people say, oh, I have a relationship with Jesus and therefore I know yeah. that it's true. Um, but so there's sort of an intellectual and emotional one. So ah. if you understand what I mean, like, as I in... Think so. so, yeah, what's the basis for your belief? Surely you haven't seen, oh, this argument proves that the Christian God exists, therefore I believe it. Surely there's a relational element to it. Um, one of the most exciting and provocative developments in religious epistemology, epistemology is the theory of knowledge, 
And one of the most exciting developments in the area of religious epistemology is so-called reformed epistemology, spearheaded by the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga um, and, and a whole train of philosophers who have followed him in this epistemology. And basically what Plantinga says is that the um, religious convictions can be fully rational. They are part of the deliverances of reason, even though they are not based necessarily on argument and evidence. Uh, and one of the things that Plantinga would appeal to would be what he calls the witness of the Holy Spirit, or what you might call this personal relationship with God that you might that you just mentioned. Uh, and Plantinga argues that a person is quite within his rational rights, who has such uh, an experience, to believe in the veridicality of that experience, and hence in the beliefs that it entails, um, even if he doesn't have arguments and evidence um, in support of those beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not arguments and evidence in support of such beliefs. I, th I think, indeed, there are. But it's to, simply to say that in order to be rational and reasonable, religious belief doesn't have to be based upon argument and evidence. Uh, and the strength of planning is uh, position is that this is true of many of our beliefs. For example, our belief in the reality of the external world. There's no way you can prove that you're not a body in the matrix uh, with illusions of this external world around you because any evidence you would give of it is drawn from your sensory information about the external world or the reality of the past. There's no way to prove that the world wasn't created five minutes ago with built-in appearances of age. Um, and so these beliefs are what Plantinga calls properly basic beliefs for us. They are grounded in our experience of the external world and our experience of the past, um, but they are not based upon argument and evidence. They are properly basic beliefs which are entirely rational for a person to hold in the absence of some reason to think that they're false. In the absence of a defeater for these beliefs, you are rational to accept them. And he would argue it's exactly the same for the person who has a personal connection with God. Uh, surely in some cases, um, there are cases of people who believe they had a true relationship with God, but they fell away. Um, surely that's not true evidence, therefore, of them having been in a relationship with God, because they were utterly convinced that they were speaking to God, crying to God, loving God, and then they fall away. Uh, mm. Well, now, there's a couple of different things here. Certainly, I think there can be spurious experiences, um, both of, say, the external world or false memories, and there could be spurious experiences of God. Um, but that doesn't undermine all of your perceptions or memories or experiences of God. What you need to do is to ask, is there some defeater of this experience that ought to cause me to call into question the veridicality of this experience? And if you are confronted with such a defeater, um, then Plantinga would say you need to have a defeater of that defeater. Um, and that's one role that uh, Christian apologetics can 
uh, serve, it can help to supply defeaters of the ostensible defeaters brought against religious belief by secularists. Uh, thanks. Uh, in terms of, I want to move on to probably the center of what you believe, which is Jesus. And I know that you've dedicated a lot of uh, research to the historicity of Jesus and specifically the historical evidence for the resurrection of yes. um, Jesus. Um, so first of all, on Jesus, what evidence do we have that, what do we know about Jesus historically? First yeah. of all, his existence, but what do you think you can deduce just purely through historical um, techniques about I Jesus? I think through a simple, ordinary historiographical principles, we can show that Jesus of Nazareth had a remarkable self-concept that he believed himself to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, to be um, the Son of God in a unique sense that set him apart from uh, Jewish kings and holy men and, and other persons, and that he believed that he was the divine human son of man prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophet Daniel. And it was these allegedly blasphemous claims that eventually led to Jesus' crucifixion. He was condemned by the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, on charges of blasphemy, and then delivered over to the Romans for execution on the charge of treason, setting him up, himself up as king of the Jews. Now, I believe that the evidence concerning the fate of what happened to Jesus following his crucifixion gives good grounds for believing that those claims were not blasphemous but were true. And what I'm referring to here are facts such as uh, Jesus' burial in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery that that tomb was empty by a group of Jesus' women followers on the Sunday morning following the crucifixion, the experience of different individuals uh, and groups of people of seeing Jesus alive after his death, and finally, the very origin of the Christian faith in the middle of the first century, despite every predisposition of these earliest uh, disciples to the contrary. Those facts represent the mainstream conclusions of New Testament historical Jesus scholarship today. And I would argue that the best explanation of those facts is the one that the original disciples gave, namely that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if the God of Israel who was allegedly blasphemed by Jesus, has raised Jesus from the dead, then he has dramatically and publicly vindicated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which he was crucified. And that, I think, gives good, rational grounds for believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Um, just picking up, just perhaps just on the, the Gospels, I suppose, are quite a major well the major well they're the biographies of jesus um lots of people say they were written too far after the events for them to have any sort of mm. bearing on reality is that uh is that 
a fair statement or um if it is a fair statement then that describes the opinion of the hoi polloi the, the the great masses who have never read or studied of this on the contrary mm-hmm. among historical scholars the gospels are noteworthy for their proximity to the events that they describe these Accounts of Jesus were written down within the first generation of the events they described while the eyewitnesses were still alive. And we have a number of confirming independent sources behind the Gospels that supply multiple attestation for the events and the sayings that they record. And this is almost unprecedented in ancient history. I don't know of any other major figure in ancient history of whom we have four different biographies which are in many ways independent of each other. Now certainly uh, Matthew and Luke knew and used Mark, but there's a great deal of material in Matthew and Luke that is not derived from Mark uh, and that provides independent confirmation. And, And this is particularly true of the accounts of the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. Uh, Just to give a a case in contrast, um, the earliest accounts we have of the life of Alexander the Great were written by Plutarch and Arian 400 years after Alexander's death, and yet classical historians uh, still regard them as largely accurate accounts of the life of Alexander. Uh, And compared to that, the Gospels are dramatic in the proximity they have to the events that they describe. Um, In terms of uh, manuscripts, how Mm. many manuscripts? Because clearly, to get these Gospels, we don't have the original Gospels, but they must. I know. I know they've been copied down. How many copies do we have, and how does that compare to other? Um, yeah. Books? Now here we need to be careful on how we use our terms when you say we don't have the original. What we don't have are the autographs, that is to say, the actual copy that was written by Luke or or Matthew. We don't have the autograph. But we do have the original text with about 99% certainty uh, based upon the multitude of manuscript copies that were made of that original autograph. And one of the tasks of textual criticism is to reconstruct the text of the autograph by using this abundant manuscript evidence, which is far and away in excess of what we have for other classical works of antiquity. There is no other book in ancient history that is attested as abundantly as the New Testament, both in terms of the number of manuscripts and the proximity of those manuscripts to the date of the autograph. Um, So scholars have been able to reconstruct the wording of the original text with about 99% certainty. And the um, 1% that remains uncertain uh, concerns just trivialities that make no doctrinal difference. For example, um, in 1 John, he says, we write this that our joy may be full. 
But some manuscript variants say, I, we write this that your joy may be full. And the difference, as in English, is just one letter between your and our. And it's uncertain which of those the original reading was. But I think you, you'd agree that nothing of significance hangs upon a variant like this. And that's what most of these uh, 1% are. Um, just in terms of a few passages that I think, well, I'm not Christian, but I've grown up in the church. And when you open John 8, the start of John 8, it, I think it's John 8, the, it's in italics um, uh, because it's a bit uncertain whether that's a genuine bit of John or whether it's a later addition. Surely those bits arguably contribute to... Um, do they provide a doubt about the reliability of having now, one gospel? If I, did I understand you correctly, Sorry. William? You're saying that the Gospel of John, chapter one and verse eight, is no, no chapter. No, sorry, sorry, chapter eight, chapter eight, the start of chapter eight. Oh, is the the story of um, of um, the, uh, uh, the woman taken let him who found in adultery. Yes. Yeah, and let him yes. have who has no sin cast um, This does not appear to have been part of the original text of the Gospel of John, though many scholars think that it does mediate an independent Jesus tradition that God incorporated into the Gospel oh. of John, so that even if it wasn't part of John's Gospel, some scholars say, this looks like Jesus, this sounds like mm. Jesus, and so this could be a kind of independent um, pericope, as they're called, that was then later incorporated into John. But even if it's not, although it's a wonderful story, I mean, it's very touching, nothing of doctrinal significance hangs on it. Thank you. Um, in terms of, we did touch on the re resurrection, but I do want to return to that because obviously made one of the, for Christians, all of history hangs on it. Um, in terms of the resurrection, I think, should we go step by step through, you, you mentioned different um, bits of the yes. argument. I think it's a minim minimalist sort of argument where you have certain premises and then put together. So the first premise was um, that, well, I don't know, I've seen different arguments. The first premise was that uh, Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus? Am I right? Yes, I think that the burial account of Jesus is extremely important with respect mm. to the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Um, because if the burial account is reliable, then that means that the site of Jesus' body was publicly known in Jerusalem to both Jew and Gentile alike. And in that case, it would have been impossible for a movement founded upon belief in the resurrection of the dead man to arise and flourish in the very city where Jesus had been publicly crucified by his enemies. So the burial story is just um, of enormous significance here. And what is interesting is that by far and away, uh, most New Testament historians agree with the reliability of the burial account uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. So we have here a very solid uh, piece of historical evidence that is 
of significance for the resurrection. In terms of the next premise, which is, uh, or the next part of the argument, which is the empty tomb, um, could you maybe just expand on just why the empty tomb story seems very reliable? Well, in my published work, I list about five or six independent lines of evidence that support the historicity of the empty tomb account. Uh, for example, one of them would be multiple attestation. We have multiple independent accounts of the fact that Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his female followers on Sunday morning. Uh, and this is one of the most important criteria of historicity that historians use. If you have early independent accounts of the same event, then it's highly improbable that this is fictitious and, and just made up. Uh, the best explanation for multiple independent accounts of the same event is that they have a historical core. And here we have not just two, but we have something like four or five uh, multiple independent uh, attestations to the fact of the empty tomb. Another factor that has been very persuasive to contemporary scholarships, uh, scholarship is the fact that the tomb is discovered empty by women in a patriarchal society mm -hmm. like first century uh, Jewish culture. The testimony of women was regarded as almost worthless. Uh, according to Josephus, a Jewish historian, the testimony of women shouldn't even be admitted into a court of law because it was so unreliable. Uh, so that if these accounts of the discovery of the empty tomb were later legendary accounts developed by the church, they would certainly have made male disciples, like Peter or John discovered the empty tomb, not women whose testimony was more of an embarrassment than a factor in favor of the historicity of the empty tomb. So this has been a very influential factor in many uh, scholars coming to accept the credibility of the empty tomb account. That's just a couple of, of lines of evidence. Mm, yeah. And the next premise is um, that many people, is it claimed to see Jesus after um, after the empty tomb discovery, many people claim to see Jesus. Is that yes. part of your... Different argument? individuals yeah. and also groups of people uh, experience these appearances. And this, again, is virtually universally admitted mm. among New Testament scholars. It's hard to find any New Testament scholars that deny that these individuals and groups at least had experiences of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. These are mentioned and listed by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in the city of Corinth, Greece. And many of these uh, appearances have multiple independent attestation in the Gospels. So really the only question with regard to these appearances is how do you best explain them? Um, and the skeptic will have to try to explain them psychologically, that these were somehow hallucinatory visions uh, brought on by psychological factors um, that 
caused the disciples to project these visions of Jesus. But the fact of these experiences isn't disputed today. In terms of an, an argument that is argued by um, non-Christians is that um, the resurrection story is extremely similar to other stories from other legends. I think I've heard Osiris being thrown around as a possible um, uh, example of the resurrection story some people claim being stolen from other narratives. Is that plausible? No, it's not, William. This is a uh, hundred years or more out of date. Um, mm. This gambit was tried in the so-called history of religion school during the 19th century. Um, scholars in comparative religion ransacked the literature of ancient Greek and Roman, and in the case of Osiris, Egyptian mythology, looking for parallels to Jesus and the Gospels, including the resurrection. Uh, and the claim was that belief in Jesus' resurrection was the influence of these pagan myths upon the early disciples. Well, that um, gambit now has been completely abandoned among uh, New Testament scholars, uh, principally for two reasons. Uh, first, it turns out when you examine the parallel, the alleged parallels more closely, they turn out to be spurious. Um, many of these just concern symbolic representations of the crop cycle as the crops die in the dry season and then come back to life in the rainy season. They have no application to historical individuals at all. And then secondly, there isn't any causal connection between these myths and these early Jewish disciples. Um, these sort of myths were anathema to Jews, and it's inconceivable that people who actually knew and lived with Jesus of Nazareth would have come to believe that he rose from the dead because they heard about Egyptian myths concerning Osiris and so forth. Uh, and so this is not a credible um, explanation of the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. You only find this today in sensationalist literature or popular material on the internet, but it's not a view that's defended by historical scholars. Thank you. Um, I think we're gonna. I'm gonna move on to one more argument that you have um, proposed, but I haven't actually chosen it. Uh, I want to ask what argument convinces most people. What argument that you have uh, argued has convinced yes. most people? I think that the argument that is most effective with unbelievers is what I call the moral argument for God's existence. And the idea here is that if there is no God to serve as the absolute plumb line and foundation of moral values and duties, then moral values and duties are not objective. They are just uh, illusions fobbed off onto us by evolution or by societal conditioning or parental instruction. But in fact, 
There is no objective good and evil, right and wrong. But that flies completely in the face of our moral experience, in the face of terrible moral evils like uh, the atrocities being per perpetrated now in Ukraine uh, or in the Holocaust in World War II, I think we instinctively apprehend a realm of objective moral values and duties. Uh, and so moral skepticism, I think, is, is quite unjustified. There is no good argument for moral skepticism. For there to be a good argument for moral skepticism its premises would have to be more obvious than the reality of objective moral values and duties themselves, and that is clearly not the case. So if objective moral values and duties cannot exist without God, and if objective moral values and duties do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. And I find that this argument is very effective because it really grabs you where you live. You can choose to ignore the evidence for the origin of the universe or the design of the cosmos, but every day you get up, you answer by how you treat other people whether you think they have objective moral worth or not um, and are just to be treated as mere means to an end. Um, in terms of this objective morality displayed by humans, is it, do you witness the same morals across different societies? Because surely different societies are very different. Yes. Um, so that's I am not a sociologist or anthropologist, but from my reading, anthropologists do believe that there is a kind of fundamental moral code that permeates human societies. Now, this may come to different expression culturally, based upon different societies. For example, I've been told that although modesty is a very common value in human cultures, what counts as modest may vary radically. In some contexts, women showing their bare arms may be considered to be immodest. In other cultures, they can go bare-breasted, and that's not immodest. So they share a value of modesty, but what counts as modest can vary from culture to culture. Thank you. Um, quickly, I think I just want to ask about the problem of evil. I don't mm. know. It's quite a big topic to fit into a few minutes, but I'll... Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, we see in Ukraine people are suffering, war. How does God let this happen if he is... It's a classic argument. If he's all-loving, all um, how can we see this in the world and accept that there's still a Christian God? Mm -hmm. Well, I think from a Christian perspective, what we should say is that God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing the horrible evils that occur in the world. Uh, now, there's no reason to think that we should always be able to discern exactly what those reasons are, though sometimes I think we can speculate. Um, but the atheist, to prove that evil... Uh, is a disproof of God's existence, would have to show that it is either impossible or highly improbable that God could have morally sufficient reasons for allowing the evils and sufferings in the world. 
And no atheist has ever been able to shoulder that burden of proof. It, that places a burden of proof so heavy on the atheist's shoulder that it's unsustainable. I, I don't think that uh, we're in a position to make those kinds of probability judgments with any confidence whatsoever. And then I might also note, William, what we just said about the moral argument, namely, there's actually a good argument for God based upon the reality of evil, and it would go like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Evil exists. Therefore, objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. So while on a superficial emotional level, evil seems to call into question God's existence, I think on a deeper philosophical level, it actually proves God's existence because in the absence of God, um, good and evil as such would not exist. Very interesting. Um, and I think we're at the end of the interview. I just want to ask uh, what... Uh, I just want to ask going forward um, what work you're doing, so what uh, projects you're doing going forward. Um, just speak about that. I am currently engaged in writing a systematic philosophical theology. This is a project that will probably take me about 10 years to complete, God willing. Uh, I have finished the first volume, uh, and by the time it's complete, it, could, it should cover the whole field or, or survey of Christian doctrine or theology with a special emphasis on the profound philosophical questions that arise in each area of Christian doctrine. And so that's the task that I've set for myself and upon which I am embarked. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a uh amazing interviewing you for this well um, i've really enjoyed it uh i i love uh the british people i did my doctoral work <laughs> there as you may know and i i'm my my roots are there genealogically and so i i just um am very eager uh to do anything i can to help uh citizens of the uk come to a vibrant and living faith in god Thank you so much. It's, it's been a real um, privilege to have you on the podcast. I, didn't, I, did, I was really um, humbled when you said you'd come on the podcast. So thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Dialogos. Don't forget to follow the podcast for more interviews with more fascinating individuals.